and there was something on the trail down below and I couldn't work out what it was. At first I thought it was a, like a moose sleeping or something. And I moved down closer and closer and eventually um, this lynx turns around. It, it, it was eating uh, eating into the carcass of something. It turns around and I'm only like maybe about 10, 15 meters away from it. And it looks at me like with a bloodied face. Like, and I could see it, just see it looking at me very calmly. And then it literally just kind of like took one jump off the trail into the woods. So I, I was left stood there for probably about 15 minutes because whatever this dead thing was, it was right in the middle of the trail. And I was like, I, I'd love to be able to Google right now. <laughs> do links do links attack humans? But I, I wasn't sure what was going on. So I had my two ski poles out and I eventually just was like, right, well, I got to walk past here because there's no other way getting, 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 getting past. So I walked past anyway and with my two ski poles out, you know, just kind of, kind of hoping this thing wouldn't jump out of the trees. That, my friend, was Gavin Hennigan. And this is the Inspiration Runners Podcast. Hey everyone, hope you're all staying safe during this unusual time. My name's Robbie Marsh and I'm your host, so welcome to the podcast. There are Irish adventurer races and then there's Gavin Hennigan. He had to deal with a lot of struggles in his teenage years and suffered badly at the hands of an alcohol and drug addiction. He went into rehab at the age of 21 and hasn't looked back. Not only has he stayed clean and sober since then, but he's gone on to take on some of the biggest and most challenging races on the planet. His latest being in March of this year, which was the 350 mile Iditarod Trail Invitational Foot Race, which cuts through Alaska in the harshest of conditions. Not only did he finish it after having some pretty cool hallucinations, but he won the race outright. He has a long list of adventure races on his CV, such as crossing the 700km frozen lake Bikal in Siberia, the Lakey 6633 Ultra, which is a 566km non-stop self-sufficient foot race, and the 500km Yukon, just to name a few. His biggest adventure to date was to row solo across the Atlantic Ocean as part of the Whiskey Atlantic Challenge. The 5,000 kilometers crossing took Gavin, I think, just around 49 days to complete, and he finished on February the 1st in 2017, landing in Antigua after spending the entire time alone on his 20-foot boat. Not only did he win the solo category of the race, breaking the race record for the concept class, but he also beat all the other three-man and pair boats, finishing third overall behind the four-man boats, recording one of the fastest times of the solo crossing. I've decided to record a two-part series. In part one, we unpack his recent win in the Iditarod Trail Invitational Foot Race. In part two, we look back to the adversity that Gavin had to overcome, the turning point and the journey that brought him to where he is today. An inspiring story that we can all learn from. No matter how tough it gets in life, there is always a path to greatness. I'd just like to add before we start the first 26, 27 minutes of the podcast, I had Gavin's mic turned up slightly too much. So there is a little bit of tinning of the voice. Um, hopefully it won't affect the podcast too much. I don't think it did. It's with great pleasure I give you Gavin Hennigan. I did a rod, you got it. I did a rod. So it's, it's pretty famous for... Um the bike aspect isn't it yeah it's really a bike race it's probably like 80 80 percent of the people are on bike a uh, handful on foot and then one or two on ski but it's actually the whole thing is um is is on the back of the actual Iditarod dog sled race so that's the the big the big thing which is which is, which starts the week after okay so you, you guys lay down the track for them boys well not this year because it was so much snow, but uh, yeah, that what happens is the week before us, they have what's called the Iron Dog, which is a, a snowmobile race. 
and then the week after is us, and then the week after is the actual uh, dog's head race. So the the, uh, the iron dog essentially put in the trail um, usually every year. And what did that consist of? Is it all the same distance and all the same course? Yeah, it's um, it's basically like it's been the trail's been around for over a hundred years, and it's how a lot of the Alaskans travel between um, the villages in winter because in the summer it's all um, like swamp and river and stuff. Whereas in the winter it's actually easier to travel because it's it's all frozen over and and um, so initially people were traveling before flight with dog sled, you know. So that's how it all started, um, and then obviously snow machines came in. And then, um, you know, people have been traveling the trail in, in various ways over the years, you know. For those that don't know, what does it consist of, the actual course itself, as in distance and where it's at? Yeah, so the um, the, the race that I did is the, the short version, which is the 350 miles, <laughs> which sounds a bit ridiculous, because you can actually go the whole way to Nome. So the, the trail starts just outside of Anchorage in Alaska, and it goes 1,000 miles all the way to Nome uh, on the Bering Sea. Um, and only, only a few people will go to Nome, but you have to do the 350 mile version first. So, um, by me finishing, um, that I've qualified to do the thousand mile if I ever, uh, if I ever get, out of, if I ever get out of my apartment ever again. But anyways, we, we can talk about that later, but yeah, it's, um, it's been going for close to 20 years actually. Um, and it's actually, uh, it's, it's called an invitational because you kind of get vetted before you, uh, if you apply to do it, and then you get invited to come along. Um, so you have to have done a couple of other winter races of the similar distance, uh, and or have, you know, sort of experience in in sort of like uh, winter conditions. Um, and obviously, living here in Chamonix, I'd have a lot of that. Um, so yeah, that's that's how that's how I got in. The only difference in Chamonix is you do have an apartment. Yeah, exactly. I'm not stuck outside for. <laughs> for seven days or whatever yeah so it's it's around it's middle of march isn't it like so temperatures pretty low first of march it starts so yeah it's still very much winter up there um it can it can vary quite um quite wildly like this year we had a swing of about 40 degrees so when we started off on day one it had snowed the night before so it was close to zero it was probably about minus two minus three um and then on the fifth day we had i think it was around minus 45 so i mean that's pretty crazy temperature difference like when are you ever going to get a 40 40 degree swing in temperatures in ireland you know it's just it's unfathomable really you know so are you based in chamonix or are you based at home no i'm based here i've been living here for uh last couple of years now so yeah i was uh bouncing around for a lot of years traveling the world um with my job and sort of different different adventures and then um yeah eventually decided to settle here yeah because you were in the i seen you do the art o'neill challenge at the beginning of the year didn't you did you just pop over yeah. just for that yeah so I, I came back um for that yeah because i mean i've i've done it uh i did it in 2016 and then um i've tried to get in another couple of times so yeah i said i'd uh i'd come back for it because i got in with the lottery i always um throw my name in um, so I decided yeah, I'd just come back for that weekend. Um, I just kind of wanted to test test my leg out as well. I had an injury last year, a stress fracture in my leg. I was actually training for Tour de Jean um, just here on the other side of the of Mont Blanc. And I got a stress fracture. Um, so I, I was sidelined with that. And then kind of the few days after I'd found out about stre- stress fracture, I was really devastated, um, obviously, with that because I'd taken some time off work and I was really preparing right for... Um, 
uh, for the tour. And, uh, you know, I'd gotten a coach like Paul Tierney was coaching me and, you know, oh, I was kind of doing everything geez. right. But, uh, yeah, I just, I think it's just the downhill running seems to just, um, the loading of my body, you know, because it's my second stress fracture. Um, and, um, so anyways, yeah, a couple of days after I found out I got the MRI, that's literally when I entered the, or applied to enter the Iditarod. And I kind of didn't tell anyone at the time. And I was actually almost a little bit ashamed of myself because I was like, God, like I've done myself in again from running and injury. And like, this is, should be a massive red flag. Why am I doing this? And here I am entering a, a really long race in Alaska. But I, uh, you know, I rehabbed pretty good. I did a lot of cycling and things were good towards the end of the year. But I was still worried and then the arch was I suppose you know just a little kind of test I suppose even though you know, obviously it's not nowhere near as long but you know it was good just to get out and do a, a long effort you know a little tester see where you're at yeah like, yeah, yeah. how far is that is it like 320 kilometers or something crazy like that yeah yeah it's a, it's it's a crazy one yeah it's 300 I think 330 with um I think 24,000 meters of climbing so it's, yeah. it's quite ridiculous yeah so it's it's, um, it's strange when we talk about events because we talk about the climbing, don't we? But as mm. what you pointed out there, I think the descent is the one that gets us all. Like, you know, it's the one that fatigues the legs. There's so much of an effort and pain yeah, coming I, down. Yeah, because I, I was doing a lot of um, sort of um, zone two kind of math style training, you know. Um, and so I was going all my uphills. I was limiting my heart rate, you know, not to go into zone three. So I was having naturally to back off and over time I was getting getting quicker, but I was tending to make up time on my downhills and I'm actually quite a good downhiller. Well, I'm, I kind of have no, I don't have a lot of fear in the downhills because I'm a snowboarder here in Chamonix and I do, you know, like, you know, I'm big into like going fast on my snowboard. So like my downhill is kind of like, you know, I, I quite enjoy it. It's fun, you know, um, but whatever way I'm uh, biomechanically set up and, you know, it probably has something to do do with my job as a diver like um that sort of loading in my bones um is an issue like i've never pulled a muscle in my life i've never i don't really have any knee issues or any sort of ligament or stuff like that but like i've had a few stress fractures so that's my kind of my weak point so i have to I have to watch that you know and um, how many miles a week did paul have you doing then um i can't remember the actual mileage it was more time um so it was like you know it was all time-based stuff so it was uh you know sort of you know, an hour here and there, an hour easy, two hours easy, um, and then longer stuff on, you know, the weekends or, you know, sort of, um, but like, to be quite honest, I did a little bit, I always did extra, like I'm kind of, like I, in the month of June last year, I climbed 28,000 meters, and it was, it was in July that I got the stress fracture, um, and I was on the Strava leaderboard, you know, this monthly climbing thing, and I was a little bit into that and I did some extra stuff um, that I probably shouldn't have done. And um, I think that cost me. I, I can actually feel Paul at the minute <laughs> listening to this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if anyone knows Paul, like Mr. Mr. Common Sense, like he's, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> so yeah we, we did do a podcast with Sean Stewart, who done the Arthur Neal. So if anybody wants to know about that race, which is pretty unique, I'd love to get into it myself. Um, it's down mm -hmm. in Dublin, but. Um, tune into that. I think it's about podcast 96 or 97. Um, mm. I'm not going to pronounce this this right again because I didn't bloody write it down, but I did say it again. Yeah, Dillerod. Do you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to write it down the way it sounds, <laughs> not the way it looks. I did a rod. The Iditarod Trail Invitational. Um, the good thing about this is I can cut out whatever I want, so I'm all right. Yeah. <laughs> I always sound good. I always sound like I know what I'm talking about. 
<laughs> so, like, what type of a person signs up for that race? Um, I wouldn't say it's like traditionally somebody who's like, you know, an ultra marathon runner, like somebody who does fifties or hundreds. It's generally people who are like into more like trekking and kind of adventure based stuff and who still want to be in a sort of competitive environment. It's not a, it's not a very accessible thing to be doing, to be quite honest, you know, like you're going to have to travel to Canada or America. There's one of them in the North of Finland. Um, the Rovani that's on every year and then Scott Gilmore who organizes the spine has been threatening to put one on um in the north of Sweden as well because he's he does a, a bit of that stuff he's crossed Lake Baikal and that's something that I've done as well so there's it's I, th- I can see more and more people getting into it um but for me I think uh, I got into it because I was um I was into sort of mountains and, and snow and stuff before that I was doing a lot of mountaineering and backcountry snowboarding. So the appeal was there once I kind of saw the, obviously the environments that it was in. And the first one that I did was in 2015, it's called the Likey 6623 ultra in the Northwest territories in Canada. And you know, that was, that was kind of the first, the first one. Then I did the Yukon Arctic ultra at 300 miles after that. And they were the two kind of, you know, things that got me into the Iditarod. Yeah, the catalyst. And you done well in the Yukon, didn't you? Yeah, I got second in the Yukon um, to this guy, Jan um, Kriska from America. And uh, we had a really, pretty good race. And he broke the record and I came in just just a few hours behind him and just, just uh, after the record. So I was like the third fastest time there. So that was that was a pretty good result. The first time around when I did the Likes one, it took me like eight and a half days. It was very kind of, you just get through it, try and finish, you know. And then I kind of had a little bit of belief that I could go a bit faster and be a bit more efficient and that's kind of what i did in the yukon um, um was the likey was it a bit like the baptism of fire introduced absolutely that type of event like absolutely considering i hadn't really done a whole lot of like ultramarathons beforehand i hadn't really i think i might have done a, a 50 or something like that but i hadn't hadn't any sort of natural mm-hmm. progression you know like half marathon marathon ultra 100 it was nothing i'm kind of i think i think to be gone it, done it the whole backwards where i'm coming down coming down in distance you know but it's pretty unique like because when you're in these comp i think in, like in the smaller events um because when i was taking a look on your blog which is excellent by the way and Cheers. i was just thinking to myself like like how the fuck do you just keep pushing on through that? Like, cause when I think back to 50, 60 mile hour races, um, but I get it when you're out there longer and that sense of adventure and you know, the longer you're there, the more accepting you can be. I find like, yeah, yeah, for sure. I think the, um, the, it, all these races that I've done, like the biggest, um, you know, time when people drop out is the first 36 hours, you know, that's, you know, once you get beyond that, you're kind of adapted a bit more to the sort of the route the routine and the sort of the hardship of it and people who tend to get through that first up to two days you know generally can get on and finish i think and that's what i've seen you know in these these long ultras once you get to the the bottom of the stairway to hell i suppose and you just know it's <laughs> you just know it's gonna be hell and you can accept that then it's at that point exactly. you can move on yeah exactly so what yeah. what type of prep? So in Chamonix, then um, obviously you're in the perfect place to prep for a race like this. Because mm. it's totally yeah, self sufficient, so, isn't it? You have to pull your pug and all that good stuff. Yeah, so I've got this sled um, that I've got behind me, and it's got um, all my gear in it. Uh, you know, food, uh, fuel, a stove, 
bivy, all that sort of stuff, spare clothes. Um, so yeah, here in Chamonix, um, it's actually quite tough here because you can imagine it's oh, uh, there's obviously just a lot of a lot of mountains, <laughs> you know. <laughs> so there's no like nowhere to great places to pull the sled. But just over on the Italian side in Cormier, there was there's a dog sled um, uh, track there, and the the guy who owns that um, he was uh, he's actually ran the Iditarod Trail dog sled race a few times. So uh, there was me and another Italian guy who were um, meeting up over there and training. So we do that in the weekends and he was very welcoming because obviously, you know, he knew we were going out to Alaska. Um, so I did a lot of training um, on this kind of small enough loop, really. It was just, you know, um, I think about an 8K loop. So it was just lapping that a fair bit. Um, but I was very, really mindful of my volume this year because um, of the injury. And I did a lot of uh, kind of additional work on the bike. So I've got a, a turbo here in the house, you know, with um, uh, a subscription to Zwift. Um, yeah. which is which is an absolute godsend at the moment uh, during the during the, the lockdown so um, I did a lot of extra work on there and you know sort of really watched my uh, my volume I actually only averaged um in the, the th- months beforehand it was probably only about 50 miles a week um okay. actually on foot yeah and I the rest of the time I just relied on you know the experience that I had and I just you know, it was imperative that I got to the start line, um, you know, well rested and in good condition, you know, um, and not injured. Yeah, we're going to go into the race, obviously, in mm. a minute. Like, but how did you find them with that type of preparation based on the stress fracture that it fared to the other events that you'd done? Because um, you really cross-trained. You just managed what you could do, really, didn't you? Did you feel that yeah. it stood by you strongly? or? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, it did definitely. Like, I, you know, when I... When I did the race um you know i was the, there was certain parts of my legs that were completely fine like i a few years ago when i did the yukon like my hip flexors were really put out and after a few days i um if i was like changing like pants or something i couldn't like lift my leg on its own i had to pick it up myself and that was a lot to do with like my glutes not firing and you know that was a lot of work that I'd done with the physio um since you know getting that injury so there was other stuff that I worked on and this time around I think I compensated with I suppose better you know sort of I suppose better mechanics really um which which definitely helped do you do anything with sleep deprivation at all sleep deprivation yeah um yeah like I don't I wouldn't train like no. that I don't think it's I don't think it's um worth it i think that you know you do it when you do the event and that's your baptism as a, baptism as a fire as you said in the first place and and then you just learn from that and you you know you, you do it in the event i wouldn't be you know go doing all-nighters out here and like that i don't think that's um gonna it's gonna just more it's just gonna tax you more than anything and um, what sort of weight is in your pug then uh so i think mine was about 20 20 nearly 25 uh, 22 kilos i think it was Okay, it's pretty yeah. light though, isn't it? Really, in yeah. So all I, the stuff I, you have to pull, like, I had gone light. The, the problem with this, the problem or not problem, if you the only way of looking at it for this race is that there's no mandatory kit, and this is one of the reasons why they um, vet you and make sure that you're, you know, you have the experiences that they they don't impose any um, a lot of rules on people. It's right. kind of it's up to you to go out there and do do your thing, and there's very little input from the organisations. So. Um, the Yukon Arctic Ultra and Likes and any of these other races, like they will, you know, they scrutinize you before you start. You know, you got to have like a minus 40 sleeping bag. You know, you have to have a really solid stove, you know, a whole bunch of, a whole kit list of stuff. 
Whereas this time I didn't have to have that, but that proposed its own sorts of problems because I was having to decide what I'd take and what I wouldn't take. And it's all down to risk then, you know, because, you know, if I decide to take a lighter sleeping bag, you know, then I'm saying, well, am I going to be warm enough? Or if I don't decide to take a, you know, like a proper MSR stove with white gas, um, which I never took in the end, I actually just took a, a Nesbit, which is like a, a small um, like tablet stove, you know, and that was more for survival than than actual stopping to make water, you know. So there's a lot of stuff of like that, um, but I managed to go what I was comfortable with um, and reasonably light. There was a lot of people that went a lot heavier than, than me and guys have gone definitely gone lighter than me in the past. Is there any piece of kit that you left behind that you wish you didn't? <clears throat> um, no, actually, I was pretty happy in the end because I, yeah, yeah, I, I was... Um, well, I was happy with with all my gear. What What do you do when you're selecting that? Like, are you like googling online and like questioning people and all that good stuff? Like, you, you're looking for yeah. every little ounce of information you can find, really, aren't you? Yeah. So, I mean, obviously, I've got a bit of experience with you know the events that I've done and stuff, but I I hadn't been to um, Alaska before. Like, I haven't been on this race. So, um, there's a you know there was a Facebook group and there's plenty of stuff going on yeah. there. And then there was a few a couple of blogs and there was one guy called Lars, a local guy from Anchorage, and he had, he had written a blog, and there was lots of um, GPS tracks and stuff like that, so I was able to kind of go through his Strava and, like, work out the distances, because it, it actually, the distance can change every year. The distance is mostly in the last 10 years has been closer to 300 miles, actually, than 350, because the race doesn't start quite, quite in Anchorage anymore. It's, it's just outside Anchorage, um, and also a couple of the routes that it takes through the mountains, they've kind of found more a more efficient race, but then they still have the trail markers and they're marked as per the old marking okay. system. So it's still marked as like mile, you know, 30, but it's still not actually, it could be mile 20, you know? So it's quite confusing when you're trying to like figure it all out online beforehand. Um, but this guy, Lars, was, was a great help to me. And he met up with me beforehand and everything. We, we did a little bit of training. Um, and yeah, it was just a, a lot of stuff like that, really just, you know, asking as many questions as I could and, and, and sort of, you know, doing as much research as I can. Do they give you a GPX file for navigation or anything like that? No, no, they don't provide anything. They're, uh, they're kind of, they're great <laughs> in that way, but they're also sort of useless. <laughs> There's not a lot of input. Um, they, you know, so that's just kind of, it's more of a community based thing, which I kind of like as well, because it brought a lot of people together because, you know, through this yeah. Facebook group. And people were sharing information with each other and it was all tips and tricks. And there's a lot of people that do return and do the race again and again, you know, and I kind of didn't understand that before doing it. But now after doing it, I do understand it because it's so um, it's very autonomous. Like you're 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 very much making your own decisions out there. Like there are there are checkpoints along the way um, and there are a couple of drop bags. But, you know, it's all, you know, it's based on like what you, what kit you want to bring and how hard you want to push and, and all that sort of stuff, you know. What sort of space was in between the checkpoints then? So it varied. Um, in the beginning, the first checkpoint was uh, 80K, which is, you know, a fair, fair chunk to start with. And then it was, I think it was 40 to the next one. And then there was a couple of them that were quite close together. And then you go over the crux of the problem, which is the Alaska range. That's about halfway. And then it's quite, there's quite a lot between this from the, her, the second last checkpoint to the to the last checkpoint is 115k Jeez. and then it's another 80k to the to the finish line so you know it presents a whole range of uh conundrums you know initially you're kind of lulled into uh, you know you've got a little bit of you know closeness between checkpoints and then 
you know, once you get over the Alaska range, you're in this, you're in the interior, it's a lot colder and you're, you know, you're going to be out for at least 24 hours between yeah. checkpoints. You know? Your security blanket's gone at that stage, like, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. What sort of things you find at the checkpoints? And I'm assuming there's not tubs of jelly worms at these type of events. <laughs> no, definitely not. <laughs> they have, um, so the, the checkpoints, the way they work there, they're, a lot of them are what's called these roadhouses. So on the old Iditarod trail, they would have had stop offs where the dog sled mushers would stop. And they've kind of evolved into um, a kind of like lodge where people can stop. So you'd have snowmobilers coming along there and that's where they'd, mm. they'd fuel up again. They have, you know, uh, got like a petrol station, almost like, you know, barrels of, uh, of petrol and diesel. Um, and, you know, you can rent uh, rooms there and they provide food and stuff for that. And you can buy food and some of them they provide um, like sort of meals and stuff for that, you know. So there are there are you know some of them are quite good other of them are just they're literally just a walled tent so it's just a tent with like it's not really that warm they'll have a little stove in there but it won't be that it won't be that warm so it's hard to get kit dry and stuff with that um and then further on then you get to this i think the last one is they just use a community center in this in this one little village you know so you're just kind of in like a like a school hall you know um and there's a couple of volunteers there and they they help you out and they, they do cook you a little bit of food there so you know there's this it changes a lot you know but um you know you do yeah you want to be you don't want to be relying on them too much because you're yeah you are pretty much you know as I said, on your own most of the time I'm, we're going to break down the race but one question i've got mm -hmm. is what must it look like or how does it feel when you actually see that checkpoint for the first time because i'm assuming after doing that stretch you're like thank god yeah yeah it's it's tough yeah you, you know yourself like when you're you're trying to get into like a checkpoint and like especially with the distances and stuff, like it, the trail can vary from year to year. So if it's, it's going along the river, it can follow bends and then it can go wide on some bends, you know. So there could be, you could be a few kilometers out here and there. So you, you know, I had my, I ran my, um, I ran my, uh, um, my watch for the whole thing. Like I've got a pretty epic, um, uh, 500 kilometer Strava um, <laughs> <laughs> activity, you know, just morning run, <laughs> and. Uh, yeah, you can have your, you know, I could be looking at my watch going, geez, it, it should be here now. And you start to, you know, mentally kind of um, <laughs> crumble, you know. Um, so, yeah, the, generally the drags into the checkpoints the last few Ks are, are quite excruciating, you know. But, yeah, it's a huge relief when you when you get there, you know. Um, and, yeah, to, to sort of uh, yeah get in, get inside and try and get some kit dry and get warm for a while. Um, so what do you do? Do you go out for a couple of weeks beforehand and do a bit of preparation? Yeah, so that's what I did this time. I I uh, had um, <clears throat> I had some connections over there through um, through snowboarding, and I wanted to do a bit of that and also do a bit of do a bit of training. So I went out two weeks beforehand and spent two weeks there, which was which was really good. I had a absolutely amazing time. Um, the the Alaskan people that I that I knew were people I one one guy was a connection online, another was a guy that I'd met before when I when I was snowboarding. So they weren't people I knew <laughs> really well at all, but they. Were so uh, they were so uh, welcoming and and, and uh, hospitable, and then I had a I had a connection then uh, through this uh, this this woman from um, West Cork, who uh, called Claire Connolly, who's who um, lives out there. She's been living out there twenty five years, and she's into her mountain running. And her and her son's actually on the um, uh, USA Sky Running team. We're oh. going to try and try and get him to sign for Ireland. <laughs> <laughs> so she she was really good to me. She she was a great help. Um, they, her and her family, I stayed with them actually the night before the race started um, and they drove me out to the start line on, on, in the morning of the race and stuff like that. So I had a little, a little bit extra rest and stuff like that, you know. 
it all adds to the experience that you're just about to go through doesn't it yeah like i you know after the those you know sort of you know whatever nearly two weeks that i was there when i when i got to the start line i i remember saying to myself like whatever happens here you know i've you know had such an amazing time so far and i've met some really great people and that's really made the experience for me so far so i was you know i was definitely in a good place um you know even before starting so definitely definitely added to it you know so it's important it's important for people to understand then so it's a self-sufficient race 350 miles you know totally snow laden frozen minus 40 you're about to go through some amazing territory but also storms you know all the risks that are associated out being on course on your own um, yeah. and you've got the risk of animals and things like that so i don't know if there's like like some moose wolves yes bears <laughs> all of that good stuff is in the mix like um, yeah. are you nervous before you start yeah absolutely um it's just a very it's like a very heightened uh <laughs> you know <laughs> nervousness because it's just so much unknown um so the the, the kind of lead up to the the start um, everyone's like watching the weather like a hawk because it really defines what's going to happen you know for example if you're going to see you know really clear uh, high pressure it's going to mean it's going to be very cold but that means you might you mightn't bring your snowshoes then you know but then uh, you know this time around we didn't have that we had a lot of snow come in so the first thing you needed in the sled was definitely to bring snowshoes so there was a lot of like last minute gear decisions around that and then obviously you know, there was a lot of nervousness um, this year in particular because there'd been so much snow. Usually Alaska, is, it does get a, hot, a lot of snow, but it, it, it does get a lot of cold as well. And what happened is we had a, a foot of snow the night before the race started. And that that was on top of like a, a big snowpack that the, um, the uh, had happened all through the winter. And the big the big problem for, for the race was the moose. So this year there were a lot of moose on the trail. Um, and the moose are huge animals. You're, not, you're talking, you know, seven, 800 kilos. Um, uh, and they are, in the winter, it's harder for them to get food and it's harder for them to travel. Because you can imagine if they're walking in snow, they're just post-holing down really deep. You know, it's just really, really hard because it's so heavy. They're sinking down into the snow. So they naturally go onto this trail. And they'll walk on the trail because it's a lot easier for them. So um, it was a real threat for all the racers. And um, the moose were all over the place, basically. And a few people got in a lot of trouble. Like one guy was uh, trampled by a moose. Another guy, a biker, had to jump off his bike and literally run up a tree. And he got his bike broken, like his derailleur smashed by a moose. And there was countless people stuck um, having standoffs where they just had to stop and the moose is ahead of them and he yeah. wouldn't move and he's kind of staring at them and stuff like that. These, these are massive um, animals, like, aren't they? They're huge. Absolutely. They're maybe six foot tall. like, And they don't yes. like people at all. And um, when they see people, they charge them. And that's, that's yeah, the exactly. risk, isn't it? Yeah, they're completely aggro. I didn't realize they're not. <laughs> yeah, they're, <laughs> these lovely big they're... creatures that you see, like we've all seen the cartoon. Yeah. Um, it's not yeah. like that at all. Like, so they don't like yeah. people. They're very territorial, I suppose. Like, yeah. So that was it. That was everyone was so nervous. That was the that was the main thing was just the the uncertainty with the trail, with all the snow, and how long it was going to take people to get to like the first checkpoint and beyond, and then obviously the moose, you know. So it was it was you know a lot of a lot of nervous tension at the beginning for sure. So what did it mean with the the snow that had fallen? Then was that that was going to make it a tough start? Snowshoes to begin with. Um, yeah. So does that slow yeah. you right down or? Mm, yeah. So. Um, the, the bikers all set off ahead of ahead of us, so they start to punch in a bit of a trail. But then they actually re, 
they take a, a different route in the beginning. They get down onto some roads because um, you can kind of go any way you want. And in the beginning, because it's close to Anchorage, there's quite a lot of trails. So it's just kind of little like little trails here and there. You know, the actual National Historic Iditarod Trail is, is, is there, but it's quite easy to veer off that. So the bikers actually head off in another way. So we were left you know, with not a lot of trail punched in. So we were, we, we had snowshoes on from, you know, the first few kilometers. Um, and yeah, snowshoes, I mean, I think snowshoeing is probably one of the things I hate doing the most. <laughs> it's, uh, it's not a nice, like as snowshoeing as a pastime is, is something that I definitely would not do. And I wouldn't recommend to anybody because it's, um, it's tough to walk in snowshoes there. You know, you change your gait and you can't really run and you can't really move that fast. Um, but fortunately, I did have a pair of quite light ones. There's a company in America called uh, Northern Lights. And they do like racing snowshoes. Um, so I had those. They were they were pretty good because the trail was quite soft, but enough that it wasn't like really deep. And these small light snowshoes were were pretty good on it. How many people actually are entering this race? Um, so how many people towed the line at the start? Um, I think there was 80 altogether, actually. Right. It's quite a big so field. Then. Uh, yeah. So there was probably, I think there was about 20 people doing the full, the full trail all the way to Nome. And they were mainly bikers, a, a couple on, uh, a couple on foot, a few on foot and a, one, one guy on ski, which has never been done on skis. So, um, it's never been completed on skis. So that gives you an indication on how, how hard it is on skis. Um, and then the 350 mile, which is, you know, obviously a lot more people, um, which is mainly bikers. I think we had 20 on foot this year, close to 20. Right, so that's quite that's quite a big field though isn't it really for a yeah. race like that yeah and it's quite very international as well you know there's obviously loads of locals and um americans but there was you know norwegians italians you know aussies um you know there was yeah quite a lot so so your first day is it right to call it a first day or a first stage do you break it down into stages for yourself because you go more than 24 hours don't you really yeah so it starts at a strange time it actually starts at two in the afternoon um, from nice. Knick Lake, so it's 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 quite yeah. So the the reason they do that is because they've kind of most people stay downtown Anchorage and they've kind of got to round everyone up and get them uh, get all their uh, sleds and bikes onto like a, into the back of a truck and get it out to the start line. So um, they give themselves plenty of time um, to do that. And then yeah, it starts from this um, kind of like a just this little little frozen lake uh, by the highway where there's like a little bar and people go there. A couple hours beforehand and, and get their last bit of uh proper food <laughs> the last <laughs> and, uh, rites yeah yeah and um yes yeah, so, yes i said it starts at two o'clock so yeah you're quickly into uh night time because it's obviously still far north up there and it's only the beginning of march so um it's i think it's they have 12 hours of light 12 hours of dark up there so basically yeah you're right. by six o'clock it's dark you know or half six what aspirations did you have going in then? Were you thinking about um, potentially winning it, finishing it? Uh, yeah, I kind of, I kind of didn't know. Like I, I, I trained a lot of the um, the training that I did was uh, most people would would walk these events, but I kind of wanted to. I definitely wanted to try and run. I run run bits of it. So the training that I did was a fair bit of it was running, but you know, slow enough, like you know, seven seven minute seven minute kilometers so i kind of if the trail had been hard i i had envisioned trying to run um more of it so when i looked at it um i i, I thought i could do it in five days or less which is you know 
which would have been a pretty respectable time. The record is four days by this guy called Dave Johnson, who's a bit of a legend. He's done it like six times. Um, and, you know, obviously knew that was that was the sort of standard. And he, he had ran a lot of it, you know, but he, he he had a lot of experience as well. Obviously, in, in when he broke the record, it was a very hard trail that year and he had very little kit, you know. So I just, yeah, I just, I kind of went in thinking, yeah, I could definitely go fast. Um, the guy who won it the year before, this guy called Rob Henderson from um, Minnesota, he was back this year. So I knew he was potentially quick and he did it in five days last year. So um, I kind of had a, been stalking him on Strava um, and keep an eye on, like, out in the open, still liking his stuff. Yeah. And, you know? <laughs> and uh, you know, just sort of, you know, um, you know, sort of saying, well, you know, <clears throat> if I'm kind of with him, I'll know that I'm probably be in a good space, you know. So when I did start off, it was a bit of a, uh, you know, there's people all over the place. Um, and I started kind of trotting on the on the, on the trail and, and uh, a couple of K in, like Rob turned up behind me. So um, <clears throat> it was from that point that I knew, um, you know, we were together and we could potentially be having a race together, you know, which we did. OK, that was cool. Like, so did you do then the first day together? Were you always with yes. somebody throughout the race or? Uh, no, so forward? I'll probably get in a bit further to what happened to Rob, but we we were together, yeah, for a lot of it. But we, we started off, we got into the snowshoes and we were snowshoeing along. We were taking turns uh, leading, you know, because, uh, you know, we needed to work together um, because the, the trail was soft and, you know, you just make it a bit easier uh, <clears throat> if, you, if you take the lead. Um, and then after 20 miles, there was actually a turn off that... Um, we're supposed to take like a right-hand turn onto a, a sort of a little bit of a shorter trail that then goes on to the, the main Yentna River, which is kind of where a bulk, the bulk of the race follows the river, frozen river. And we went left um, on, on the, the sort of the old route. Um, now, when we got there, I we looked at the trail both sides and the trail to the left had more tracks on it. It was more beaten in, but the trail to the right had nothing. So we decided to go on the trail on the left and it turned out to be quite a bit longer. It was like, I think more, more like five miles longer. And then we ended up having to cross this lake. The trail went across this lake and the lake had like overflow. And this is one of the big uh, fears and problems as well for people doing these races is overflow. So overflow is like what happens when um, the, the ice that's uh, frozen on a lake or a river can crack and water can get up through those cracks and sort of sit on top of the ice and then you'll have snow on top of 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 the lake and then you can sink down through the snow and hit water and obviously that's a you know a scary proposition if you're in you know minus 20 and stuff like that so we started hitting bits of overflow and we you know we had our snowshoes on so we were stopped but it was still like a big a bit of a concern and i still had a little bit of signal on my phone and i looked at my phone and saw, looked in the tracker and saw that everyone else on foot behind us took that other route to the right Jeez. and they were going shorter around and we were kind of veering further away from the main trail, like crossing this lake, following this dodgy track that, that a couple of bikers had taken. And, uh, you know, so at that point I said to Rob, I said, look, everyone else has gone the other way. You know, we really need to work together here to get back, you know, onto the main river and, and, and sort of, you know, back on the main trail. So we, we eventually got back around um and at that point we started passing more and more bikers so 
the bikers aren't cycling at this point. So at this point, like as hard as it is for us in our snowshoes, a lot of the bikers are, are left pushing their bikes. Jesus. <laughs> so they're having an absolute nightmare. So a lot of these bikers have actually stopped for the night and uh, they're, they're setting up their bivvies and stuff. So we end up passing tons and tons of bikers. So it turns out that the people on foot are, are nearly leading the race because um, all these bikers are just like sick of just like pushing their bikes along. They don't have snowshoes and they're sinking down into the snow. So they're having a, a right old time of it. So eventually what, we get... What, what they do, Maquette? Like they don't pull a... Pull a... No, they've it all on the bikes. So they've oh, got right. the they've got the the fat fat bikes, right? Okay. And they've all the uh, the panniers and and the sort of the bike packing um, seat post bags and all that. Right. And they've got these big mitts in their on the handlebars. It sounds so they've like it all... quite, quite a weight. Like that'd be it sounds tough enough. Like to try and push that through the snow. Like absolutely, yeah, yeah. Anytime I was complaining about being in snowshoes when I saw when I saw their tracks, you know, with their with, you know, and they wear these big boots, you know, because their feet can get quite cold you know um so yeah um yeah like i was always uh, using that as a as a as a way of uh, thinking i'm, I'm too bad <laughs> yeah yeah at least it's, it's not many sports that you get in running that you actually look at the bikers and think jeez at least i'm not on a bike <laughs> <laughs> exactly yeah that was definitely the that was definitely the, the that sort of situation yeah but five five miles that is that's a long time in those type of conditions though isn't it yeah, so it was quite frustrating because we we got back around onto the main trail, and then uh, all of a sudden we start, you know, catching up with other people on foot, and you know we were we were in the lead of the race, you know, a few hours beforehand, and next thing we're passing people, and, and people are like, oh, we're, what? I thought I thought you guys were like gone, and we're like, yeah, don't 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 uh, <laughs> don't talk to us, you know. So we we ended up kind of back in about sort of fourth and fifth place, so. This is about halfway to the first checkpoint, and um, then we got we got we started catching up with a few other people. Then we caught up with um, Steve Hayes, a uh, lad from Jersey, um, another good guy to to talk to at some stage. He um, he's, he did the, this is the second time doing it, and uh, there was one other guy ahead called Christoph Teuscher from uh, he's a German American guy, and we sort of uh, myself and Rob kept going with Steve uh, towards the first checkpoint, and then we got there. The next morning, um, at about eight o'clock in the morning, so that eighty k took us, yeah, the best part of like eighteen hours. That's crazy. Like so, yeah. Um, was that the first time you were able to get some sleep? Then, how long did you go before you got some sleep? So, uh, I, my plan going into it was not to sleep. My plan was to go start at two o'clock in the day, go all the way through the night, all the way through the next day, and then sleep at some stage when it got dark the next night. Okay. So I got to that checkpoint in the morning. Um, I was there with Steve, with Rob, and this other guy, Christoph. I think Christoph got there before us, and he might have had a quick nap. But we had a bit of breakfast there and then said, right, let's get back out there because the snow had stopped, and it's, it was starting to clear, and it was looking like a nice day. And obviously, you want to maximize the, 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 the sort of daylight. So we got back out onto the trail, and uh, we left probably about, I think, about an hour, an hour and a half later, about half nine in the morning. Um, to do the next drag to the next checkpoint, um, which was about, uh, I think it's about 50, 60K to the next checkpoint. So um, does that mean you've done like 100, 140 kilometers there? Before you basically, yeah. Head down? Yeah, so I got to, we got to the Yenna station. At, uh, I got there a bit after the two lads. Um, I, had a, I had a couple of, couple of, uh, 
mishaps along the way. I uh, there was two the trails split at one stage and it went round a, a wide uh, bend on the river and I I thought the trail was good and I followed it that way, but it just added on like an extra probably kilometer and then the trail got really bad. So the two guys, which was Christoph and Rob, they kind of went on ahead of me, and Steve was had dropped back a bit at this stage, and then getting close to the station at like this is about um you know sort of 10 11 o'clock at night i had had my ski poles on i i usually walk with the with the, the poles but i um I, I put them on the back of my sled but i didn't secure them properly and i dropped one of them off the back um so i had to go had to go back and get it and it turned out to be like probably back a good kilometer so i had another extra 2k just to go back and get this ski pole so uh yeah i was a little bit frustrated then so i got in there yeah i get in at about uh i think it was about half 10 at night so yeah i was um i don't know something like 30 yeah 33 hours and 140k later um when i got my head down yeah it sounds very fatiguing though like you know 140 kilometers snow snowshoes um one pole at times. <laughs> um, yeah. How were you feeling then at that point? Like, were you going down for much sleep? So the way things work for me with these events, generally, like, I don't ever have to, like, set an alarm or anything. I was, I'd never be in fear of, like, sleeping for six or seven hours. I generally just, like, have these kind of emergency sleeps. So I had a bit to eat there and then I went into like there was they had this kind of communal kind of cabin with bunk beds and I just uh, lay in one of those for an hour and I slept an hour. So I woke up at half 12 um, and then I just was like, right, I need to get going. So I started started to go and get more food into me and start to try and get my kit ready and stuff like that, you know. So but it took a while, like I was pretty like pretty slow to get moving, obviously, and I was I was pretty rough at that stage, you know, but um yeah, I was sort of in the mindset of, you know, I just got to keep plowing on. Were you happy with your condition at this stage after the, the first sort of section? I mean, it was frustrating because obviously we were in snowshoes and, you know, I had envisioned going a lot faster and, you know, hopefully been on a nice hard trail. But it was just, you know, it was just a case of you're just dealing with what you're what you got, you know. So um, it was just managing the situation, really. Um, you know, like I when you get into these checkpoints, the first thing you do is you get off your kit and you try and dry it. Like there'll be like a stove there. You try and dry as much as you can. So I was just had done all that sort of stuff. And then I ate like a ton of food. Like I ate a meal, slept, got up and then I ate another, another meal. Um, you know, and did all the bits that I had to charge, charge my, my, my phone and stuff like that, you know? So I was happy, you know, I was doing the things that I needed to be doing. So that was, that was good, you know? Then Rob got up and so did Christoph and we were all kind of talking there. And then, we got we all kind of got going i think it was about half two in the morning we all got going together um to move on to the next to the next checkpoint yeah yeah you talked about eating food there like because um, calories is going to be a huge factor in a in an event like this because you're special well i suppose calories and fluids as well because um it can be quite you can lose a lot of fluid in the cold as well like can't you yeah, that's actually the trickiest part because when you're in warmth, obviously you're sweating a lot and you know you're you're warm and you want to drink, but it's harder to get fluids into you when you're in the cold. So you have to, and, you, and that's one of the one of the main um, you know reasons for getting frostbite is dehydration. You know, so you have to be quite on top of it. And like I had, so just kind of talk a little bit about kit. Like I had, a, I'd have, a, I had a base layer on, and then over that I had like a Salomon, um, you know, like eight liter vest. And in, in the back of that, I had a, a two liter um, uh, um, bladder 
and then I had the, the hose doubly insulated with uh, pipe lagging <laughs> and neoprene, and then I had that running under my under my armpit, and then over that over that that I had like a mid layer, which is like a you know like a just normal kind of fleecy layer, and then I had like a proper like winter coat over that, like so it's like a I have a like a mammoth like a heavy uh, triple layer windstopper with like insulation, you know. So in theory. You, you your your bladder shouldn't be freezing up but every time you take a drink from the hose you have to blow back into it because there's potential for that for that bit of yeah. fluid in there to freeze you know so you need to be quite <laughs> it's something you need to kind of school yourself to do you know so i had that two liters on me and then i would have had two like thermoses in the in the sled so i had two one liter thermoses in the sled and i'd always get hot water in the checkpoints with that and then i had a couple of soft flasks as well obviously to that i could fill so I had the potential to have, um, you know, sort of nearly five liters of, of of liquids, you know, sort of at one time. Do you find you have to keep moving then to stay warm with all that gear on or is the gear keeping you comfortable? <clears throat> well, it's quite tricky. You have to manage the layering um, a lot out there mm. because you don't want to be sweating too much. If you sweat and then you stop and it could potential for that to freeze and you could get in a bit of trouble. So you don't want to be like, like heavy sweating. Uh, definitely that's a big no-no. So you kind of, want to find a nice comfortable um you know temperature to be moving at but not too warm so you want to be just just a touch you know where you're you know on the side of a little bit you know cold i wouldn't say cold but like yeah it sounds like you have to be really in tune with your senses and what's going on in your body because you have to adapt continuously yeah it's funny because obviously <laughs> there's a lot of boring miles out there you know where <laughs> it's like en- endless 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 tundra and stuff you know so it is easy to switch off and go into la la land but yeah you do as you said you do need to be quite switched on with regards to like oh have i have i drank enough have i been eating enough like you know all those little decisions you're making you know like um you know i brought two pairs of runners at me you know so um i wasn't changing them around out there but i had i might change them at a checkpoint and one of them was like a, a half size bigger so you know my feet were swelling a little bit so i was like okay is the time to put them on yet and you know you know you're trying to yeah there's a whole bunch of like decision making that's happening pretty much all the time and that's something you definitely need to be kind of yeah i suppose tuned into what about eating then so just touched on it a little bit there because yeah how, how many calories would you burn in a day uh i mean i'm not the best person for all that sort of stuff like when i first got into all that i was very much you know of the thought process that oh you know you need to be getting like six seven thousand calories into you and like the reality of that is you just it's just not possible to eat that much you know mm-hmm. So um, what I would do is I just focus on uh, eating as much as I could when I got to checkpoints. So if there was meals available to buy, or if the uh, uh, the committee trail trail organizers had had some food there, I'd eat it. Or I had freeze dried meals myself, so I'd be eating those, um, you know, sort of thousand calorie freeze dried meals. And the rest of the time, I had a lot just just a lot of snack food, look, you know, stuff from, you know, like Skittles to bloody, you know pretzels and salty stuff and you know bars and stuff but a lot of that stuff obviously it would freeze and go hard you know so you have to <laughs> i'd have to have it all packed into quite small packets in the sled and then i'd have to transfer them out onto my body enough for them to heat up you know because if you're like you would if you had a like say a solid cliff bar or something like that you'd, you'd just break your teeth you wouldn't be able to eat it you know i suppose it's important to have those type of treats with you as well like because as you say it's quite monotonous i suppose beautiful scenery yeah. but after you've seen so many trees and snow and 
like when you go date it's yeah. nice to eat something that's nice yeah yeah like the first time when i first did the likey thing i had like all my drop bags were like all the exact same stuff so i made a whole load of like you know packets out and all lined it all up for a photo and it'll all look great you know but by the time i got halfway and i picked up <laughs> another drop bag with the exact same crap in it i was just like i was so sick of sick, sick of eating it so I, I got variance is a massive thing you know i'll like you know try a whole bunch of different stuff and obviously being in america you know there <laughs> you can you can you know do a lot of sweet shopping over there and go to the supermarkets and try all sorts of different stuff so it was kind of easy in that sense and also uh with the, with the race with the way they had it set up with the drop bags what would happen is you you might there was two drop bags along the way but when you got to those checkpoints there was a lot of people that had already scratched so they had basically they had emptied everyone's drop bags into this massive tub and it was just like a free-for-all so it was quite good like anything that you spotted in there that you might think oh that might be quite good to try you could just grab it and stash it in your sled for for further on down the trail you know so 140 kilometers one hour sleep you get up again shake yourself down and you go back out into the wilderness for another 60 kilometers. Um, how did that next stage go? Um, it actually went really well because we got out onto the trail and it was uh, it was it actually ended up being really really firm. So the next section is quite a, a travelled um, section by snowmobile. So obviously the snowmobiles are quite heavy. They packed down the trail um, and there been a bit of traffic um, before us there. So all of a sudden we were moving quite well. We weren't in snowshoes. Um, and yeah things were looking good so that night actually i ended up going as probably the fastest i've been i'd gone in the whole uh, race um and the next checkpoint was not an official checkpoint it was kind of like a cabin on a lake and there was a couple of people that had like they called them trail angels and they just know that the trail the race is coming through and they they like open up open their doors to the racers and say come on in and we're we'll if you if you arrive during the daytime between eight and eight, um, we will you know be help you out and give you some food and you can dry some kit. So that next checkpoint wasn't that far actually. I think it might have only been well, it wasn't checkpoint. Uh, that cabin was probably thirty k, and I made it there you know in pretty quick. Like I got there by about eight o'clock in the morning, um, and I passed Rob at that stage. Rob is was all, generally Rob is quite usually in front of me because. He was a very good snowshoer. He lives in Minnesota in America and he does a lot of snowshoeing over there and he's 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 a quite an efficient um kind of snowshoer and he's a good fast hiker. And I started running then intermittent running and walking. So I passed him and I and I got a bit ahead of him. And when I got to this um cabin, it's on a lake, but I had to drop down onto the lake and then cross the lake. And when I got to the edge of the lake, there was a moose stood there. So I stopped for a minute and I was like <laughs> hoping this guy would move and he, he kind of was a bit wary and he moved off onto the lake off the trail so i got down onto the onto the lake and i and i moved along and he was watching me and i was you know tentatively getting past you know and then i got past and i started running again and i was kind of like oh that was lucky and then when i looked over my shoulder um you know as i moved down and the moose had walked back onto the trail so i thought to myself oh rob's going to be coming along here in like 20 minutes half an hour probably like, I mean, I wish I could warn him in some way, but I couldn't. So I got down to the, the cabin anyway, and it's only, uh, you know, just across the lake, not, a, not you know, maybe only a kilometer away. And then I got, there was, there was the, the, there were, there was people doing breakfast there. So I got a little bit of breakfast that was quite nice. And then they, actually the race organized, race director was there. He, he'd been kind of traveling along um, with a lot of the racers on the snowmobile. 
And I told him, I said, look, there was a moose down there. And I think there's potentially that Rob and maybe one of the bikers are going to get stuck because we'd seen one of the bikers the night before. So an hour later, I was there, like having had my food, you know, was starting to pack up my kit to go again. And Rob still hadn't arrived. And uh, they went to investigate and, and sure and behold, like they were stuck. Um, him and another uh, uh, biker were stuck on the end of the lake with this moose just stood there and they just couldn't get past him. But one of the bike, when another biker came along and he was an Alaskan guy and um, he quite confidently said, like, let me just try this. And he rolled down the hill to the lake towards the moose and like stood up on his bike as high as he could to make himself look big. And uh, the moose like backed off and they got past, you know, so um, Rob was telling me, yeah, he was quite impressed by this uh, Alaskan biker who did that, you know. <laughs> that was pretty cool. Like, um, so it all yeah. went pretty well. And did you get much sleep that night then? Well, no, that was only the morning. Yeah. yeah, it was only the morning. So I, I you know, again, it was, you know, <laughs> you know, it's the, the morning had come. It was time to keep moving. So the next checkpoint after that was a was a was a decent slog. I think it was about forty. Yeah, it's about forty-five k to Puntilla Lake, which is pretty much the halfway point. Or no, sorry, it's to yeah, no Finger Lake, which is Finger Lake. So um, I left there, and I and Rob had just arrived, and I kind of knew that he wasn't gonna. Uh, spend a lot of time there and then he was going to come after me so um, as soon as I left the trail completely disappeared like it went from like an amazing few hours of like hard trail and fast conditions to absolutely no trail there was like literally nothing there I was back in snowshoes but this time I was like literally plowing through um, you know kind of like tight or knee deep snow just thinking to myself oh no this isn't any good and quite luckily a couple of snowmobilers passed by and it just made it a little bit easier, but I knew this was going to take, you know, a, a quite a while to do this sort of 40 K or whatever it was. So, um, see, see in that deep snow, how, like how long would an hour take? So, oh, sorry. In that deep snow, how, how long would a mile take? Uh, I'd say in, in those conditions, I was probably doing about, uh, probably two miles an hour at the very most. Yeah. Yeah. It was that first section was quite slow. It got a little bit better after that, because the race director came through with another guy on the snowmobile and it put in a bit more of a trail. Um, and then Rob caught up to me um, after a few hours, and we started working together um, again. You know, so we were we were punching along. Um, and at this point, you know, we'd been going. Um, like I started off, I was telling you about us being on the Yenna River, so it was all kind of very flat. And then the whole time you're approaching the mountains gradually they're just getting bigger and bigger and finger lake is kind of the first kind of start of the mountain so um we started to you know to approach it all been quite flat at this stage maybe like a little bit of, of up and downs but generally quite flat so that during that day we're we're, we're approaching uh, this finger lake lodge which is kind of like one of the iditarod checkpoints for the for the for the dog's head race um and you can just see the kind of mountains in the distance, and it was it was starting to get quite exciting. But with that, this it started to get really really windy, um, and uh, it turned into like like a pretty uh, ferocious windstorm, where the winds got up to like 50, 60 miles an hour, and we were punching through this all the way through the day, and we got to the checkpoint at about I think about seven o'clock at night, just after the sun went down, and we were pretty pretty shell-shocked by the time we got there because it had gotten so windy the trail was completely blown out we couldn't see it at all like there was no marks of anyone being in front of us and we were kind of just following the general lay of the land really and it was starting to feel like we were on a real adventure at this stage you know yeah so like 50 mile an hour winds 
I suppose the wind chill must have been colossal. Well, this it wasn't too bad. Like we that that day wasn't too cold, so we um um it was it was still sunny um but it was we couldn't really see much because they have this thing this phenomenon up there called they call it like a ground blizzard. So what happens is it gets so windy that all the snow that's like lying around just gets whipped up into like you know sort of like you know um, little whirlwinds. Yeah, yeah, smaller hurricanes, and it's just sort of like just tails around the place and you almost can't see you know you you see at one point then it just gets blocked out and it's almost like a kind of like 10 meter high like like basically a ground blizzard so it's uh, it was yeah it was quite quite crazy but it it actually wasn't that cold that afternoon so we were quite uh, fortunate and we were talking about it when we got to the next checkpoint we were saying geez if it had been any colder it would have been quite serious um but yeah we got there at i think it was seven o'clock at night uh, just as the sun went down, you know, and then when I arrived into the into the cabin, Rob was there and a couple of the other bikers, and um, the first thing I said to them, I said, "Geez, I said, lads, this is a proper fucking adventure." <laughs> Everyone was just looking at me like, "Who's this? Who's this lunatic?" You know. At least you had the Irish accent. You sort of get away with it then. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but it did. It turned pretty bad then, though, didn't it? There was a storm that was coming through that pass, like, and you have to start yeah. thinking about the next day and what's ahead of you. So that from that point there, which was the um, the start of the ascent to Rainy Pass, which is the kind of crux of the the whole route, really, because you go up to like over a thousand meters. So that night was um, a section through the trees to this next checkpoint, and then beyond that is the the actual pass itself. So we were we were in this kind of wall tent. So I told Rob, look, I'm going to go lie down for for an hour or two. And then I'll see what I'm doing then, you know, because I just I knew I needed to get a couple hours sleep because I was pretty, pretty toast at this stage. So I went down to this this kind of wall tent where we could sleep and I slept for like two hours. I slept from like half nine at night till half eleven. And I woke up then and the storm, I could hear the wind rattling the tent and it was still going on. And Rob is beside me. I said, look, Rob, I'm going to get up and start going. And he kind of was like, OK, he, he kind of envisioned sleeping a bit longer. But I told him, look, that's that's what I probably just going to wake up when I wake up, and just two hours is what I did. And so I went up to the to the cabin and you know filled my flasks and got my kit together. And uh, I'd heard the next section was through the trees, like so the the people had told me that it's not too bad, you're not that exposed to the wind. So I, I took off anyway at sort of one o'clock in the morning. Um, and after doing two hundred kilometers, three hours sleep, it's now fifty mile hour wind outside, and then you've headed out two o'clock in the morning, just painting the picture. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's quite ridiculous. And then like about half an hour into it, I regretted it so badly. I was like, what am I doing? <laughs> Only half an hour later, he starts regretting it. Like... <laughs> <laughs> because I, cause I had to cross a couple of lakes before kind of got into the trees proper. And the trail was completely gone. Like I couldn't, I couldn't see it at all. I was, uh, I was in snow up to my knees. I was just like fumbling around the place looking for the trail going, this is not good, you know? So eventually I, I had, I had a GPS, I got it out and I kind of just followed the kind of the lay of the land, followed the edge of the, the lake. And I eventually got back onto, um, the, uh, the, the trail and got into the trees and then it wasn't, it actually wasn't a bad night after that. Um, I'm assuming then that you have a tracker and that any time you can press the button on the tracker, if you get in trouble, no, so this is another little side story. So before I went out there, I uh, Steve Hayes, who I mentioned before, the lad from Jersey, he had said to me, like, oh, I can't do this race again 
unless I can contact my uh, wife. Um, and obviously, the only way you can do that is if you have a satellite phone. But I have a, a Garmin Explorer, um, like an InReach Explorer, which is a two-way messaging thing. So I said to him, look, look, you can have that because we're getting these spot trackers. And I have a spot tracker here. Like, I've used it before in the past. I have one personally, but they give you one for the race. So I was assuming they're going to give us the same ones, mm. the normal spot tracker, which is the one with the SOS button. So that was the kind of thing that you can hit, hit if you get in trouble. But I didn't realize that they weren't giving us those ones. They were just giving us the real basic ones, um, which are just a little black device. They're almost like the um, the primal tracking ones, you know? There's no yeah. SOS button on it. So I got this thing in the beginning, realizing, like, I don't have a, a safety net at all. So, you know, that was my mistake. But, you know, that's, again, that's up to you if you bring an extra bit of kit. It but sounds Steve like had... if anything happens to you, they just go into their Excel list and delete you. <laughs> 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 probably yeah yeah i think i think they might come and like if you, if you just knuckle down like if you if you hunker down like i think you know that's kind of my the safety net for me is my bivy you know like my minus 40 sleeping bag like if i got into some sort of trouble like i'm just gonna get that out and get that in that, in that straight away and i would just basically wait it out until like another racer came by or like if you sit there for long enough they're gonna come and go and see see what you're doing you know so um i suppose that would be the best way of getting getting rescued you know so how did you fare out then through, you talked about then, it, it got quite, you were pr- pretty gruesome conditions, um, but it's at those times you sort of feel the most alive, like at times, but you know yeah, you're, re- so you're in a real adventure, you know, you can think back of the people going across Antarctica years ago, like, and it sort of brings you into that type of mindset. Yeah, so that's the thing, like it got, yeah, it got to that point, um, so you know, I went the whole way through that night um, and Rob caught up with me again. Um, so, you know, we're kind of towing, towing, towing each other along. And like at this point, we're definitely having a race. You know, we're being we're, we're working together and we're, you know, obviously we're 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 not we're not uh, being ourselves to each other, but we're definitely in a race. And we get to Pontilla Lake, which is Rainy Pass Lodge, which is the checkpoint before the main pass. We get there in a sort of lunchtime and uh, this windstorm is still raging, but we've kind of been in the trees approaching this pass, uh, you know, approaching these mountains all the while. And uh, so we get into this cabin and we sort of chill out there. And, uh, you know, I was going to have another little sleep and Rob is going to do the same. But Rob said to me, oh, look, I've got a, my Achilles is quite sore, like from all the snowshoeing. And um, so he said, you know, I said, look, well, I'm going to have sleep. We'll just see how it is in a while. So we did that. And anyway. we had a sleep for like a couple hours. I think you know, I slept for an hour, an hour and a half got up, started to get ready, and I said, how's your Achilles? And he said, it's not much better, but I'll just see how it goes. So um, so I was messing around with gear, and he ended up leaving ahead of me. So it was about 5 o'clock in the evening, and he left. And there was a couple other bikers there who were due to leave, and the talk was, you know, how bad at night it was going to be. So this windstorm was still going, but there was the temperature was obviously going to drop because it had been getting progressively colder, but also we're going up in altitude. So there, there was talk of it being sort of minus 25 uh, you know, which which was as cold as it had gotten so far, minus thirty. But then you add the windshield on top of that, you're you're talking about minus fifty. So there was like a lot of apprehension there about people, like you know, not not going out at all that night and staying the whole night and tackling the pass in the morning. But Rob and I was I was going to go on anyway, and Rob was going, and Rob had been there the year before, so I was like, you know, I'm with this you know kind of veteran, or he knows the way and stuff. So we left together anyway. But about forty five minutes later. Um, he'd been just a bit ahead of me. I, I meet him coming the other direction 
and he's like he says look my uh my Achilles is is is, is quite sore I, I'm not sure I'm going to risk it you know because it's obviously very committing yeah. like doing what we're going to do is go over this pass you know through the Alaska range you know in the middle of night in this crazy windstorm so he headed back anyway and I was left on my own to to go forward and during the race briefing for the for back in Anchorage the week before, the, they one bit of advice that they'd given us, especially rookies, they said, if you're a rookie, it's your first time here, don't go over the pass uh, on your own. Like go over with a veteran, and don't do it, especially don't do it at night time. <laughs> so, so, so I'm like, I'm like walking up towards this pass, like as the sun's setting, you know, with everything on that I have, like all my down layers, like my my face mask, like my ski goggles like you know kind of marching forward with this going through my head like going this is potentially the stupidest thing i've ever done you know so. <laughs> so you came to the end of that you're almost at the halfway mark now well you're well you're well past halfway mark so 256 kilometers um it is like yeah a, is it 300 it's like 550 kilometers all in is it what 500k actually altogether pretty much okay, so you're, ha- you're at the halfway point now um, yeah like yeah. how, are you, how are you feeling at this stage? Because I'm sure after that snow and those conditions, like, and sort of losing your competitor as well wouldn't have helped. But your, how is your body faring up? Body was actually not too bad. Like I think because of the gravity of the situation with going over the pass and all that, I was kind of like jolted into this sort of like, uh, you know, alertness really. So that really helped. Like it wasn't like I was just fumbling along on a trail. I was really in the mindset of like, I can't make any mistakes tonight. You know, I need to get over here safely. And obviously, yeah, losing Rob like that was not good. Like, and I had said that to Rob beforehand, like just before he just kind of went back. I said like, you know, this, this is kind of a bit of a legendary year because of the conditions and, you know, whatever about um, the race, like just finishing it is going to be, you know, a massive achievement, you know? So like, you know, that was kind of, you know what i said to him and that was kind of my mindset as well as like this you know this is you know this is definitely a really tough year on the Diderod trail and and you know so like i kind of was like wanted to keep going you know wanted to 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 sort of you know see it out so like i was in a really good headspace in that regard because i was you know very focused but yeah my body wasn't too bad like i i i wasn't focused on speed at all um even though the trail was quite good i was just uh, just kind of one foot in front of the other stuff, you know, and just keep moving. That's that was the goal for that night. It was just to get through that night, and like it took me till three o'clock in the morning to get up over the pass, um, and that was, you know, that was really tough because um, it was, you know, I kept losing the trail. I kept wandering into deep snow, and right near the top of the pass, you know, my feet started to get really cold. Like they were definitely starting to freeze, and I had to get these like chemical hand warmers out, break them open, and stuff them into my into my runners. Um, and start to move like really quickly to try and like generate more body heat to get my yeah. feet, feet warm. Frostbite is a very real risk, like isn't it? Absolutely, it's very easy to get it. I think in those, you know, like we were talking about earlier about not being aware. You know, you might just get a little bit of you know cold fingers, and then you know all of a sudden you could it could be on you. You know, so um, I've been quite fortunate with that. You know, I've always I've always had like the best mittens I could find. You know, I these uh, you know big thick um mittens that people would wear climbing mount everest you know they've got like you know full of uh, goose down and they've got like wind stopper on the front of them you know and like i you know I, granted my feet weren't probably warm enough like i probably could have done wearing an extra pair of socks or something like that you know but 
yeah, but you're on real. you're on day you're just finishing day three, moving to day four, but you've had no sleep. I think it's like three or four hours sleep. Um, so when you're talking about making those decisions and things, it must be getting increasingly harder, um, and you must be mentally slipping away slightly. Yeah. So, like when I got over the past, like I was starting to get like I kind of like was able to relax a little bit because um, it was like okay, I've kind of over this the worst of it now. The wind dropped down altogether and I was on the trail and then it was like but it started to get quite cold and I just got super tired then and I was really like I didn't want a bivy um you know I hadn't really I think I might have put out the bivy only once before that but most of the time I'd managed to sleep in the checkpoints and I and I had to bivy then at like about four o'clock in the morning on the side of the trail you know but it was a hard decision to come to because I was starting to fall asleep you know, on my feet and I was, you know, starting to get into the hallucinations at that stage. It probably took, yeah, it took a good three days before I started to get into the hallucination stuff, which ended up being a bit of a rigmarole for the last three days. Yeah. Give, give me a few examples of hallucinations then, because I, I love listening to them. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny, actually, I listened to that podcast with the, the Tunnel Ultra, the guy that you did that <laughs> one. So, uh, yeah, I can definitely... <laughs> He Andy had gone to a different level of hallucinations. He goes, "This is totally different. Like, there's hallucinations and hallucinations. Like, so, what sort of things, um, or how did it affect you?" Well, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not trying to one up Andy, but like, I feel like I, can. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I, I feel like I can in this moment. Um, I think, like, so I've spoken to a lot of people, like who've done these other ultras and stuff. People have done like a lot of long, long distance stuff, and they've all come back and said the same thing that for whatever reason when you're in a snow snow filled place like this there's a lot of stuff you can start seeing because you can imagine you know these sort of trees with snow on them and they can start to look like a lot of different things especially if they're like overhanging trees and i was starting to see like aliens or sort of cowboys with ray guns and like t-rexes and stuff like that i was making out all sorts of stuff and like you you know, in, in the beginning, uh, it's not too bad because, you know, it's not real. And I kind of would look at a tree and see something. And then as I approached it, it would turn back into a tree. And that was fine. You know, I was not kind of uh, it's not an issue. But then towards the end, like, I mean, we'll probably get into it like the last sort of day or two. I started to get into like pretty, pretty full on like delirium where I kind of had this massive like kind of cloud of paranoia on top of it all. So I was seeing stuff, but I also was really paranoid about like, um, you know, like they're going to see that I'm in trouble now and that I'm, you know, and like my race is over and stuff like that. It was kind of like, you know, that I was falling apart, like, and there was all this sort of like doubt and stuff that was creeping into it as well. So it just kind of, it kind of, that grew on top of like the hallucinations and stuff, you know, but was there anything that you were, you weren't sure whether it was real or not? Um, even from when yes. you think about the paranoia and, and all of that sort of building up. So basically a lot of the stuff that I was seeing was stuff that didn't make sense. So when you're, when you're in out in the middle of Alaska like that, there's no roads, there's, there's no road there for hundreds of miles. All there is is this one little trail that goes across Alaska and every few hundred miles it intersects like a little log cabin or a little, you know, village, or whatever. So there's nothing out there that's man-made. So anytime I was seeing stuff like I'd see something that might look like a wall or I'd see something that looked like a house and I'd have to be I'd have to be saying to myself, well, like, that's not possible because there's nothing man made out here, you know. But then there was all these um, now and again, there was there was these there's a lot of trappers out there. So they the trappers, you know, they trap for uh, ptarmigan and 
um, you know, uh, you know, different different small animals. And they have their their traps sort of on the side of the trail and they mark different bits of the trail with different things. And they actually mark them with uh, body parts of animals. So like the, so like if you can imagine you're walking along in the middle of the night and you see you see eyes looking back at you and you think, oh, my God, there's like an actual there's something there. It, is that a is that a wolf? And it's like the head of like some small animal that's like, you know. And it, yeah, so like that just added to just the craziness of it, really, like especially at nighttime, because that I mean, that's when the hallucinations were the strongest, you know. Um, and yeah, I was seeing like so that they had trail markers, like little reflective things somewhere along the way. And if there was two of them, like I think they were the eyes of like a wolf that was like stood there looking at me, you know, but it wasn't. I'd get closer and it would just be like a little reflective marker, you know. So, yeah, that sort of stuff definitely kind of scared me, you know. Um, did you have any encount- other encounters with animals then? Yeah, so um, obviously saw a couple of moose and I was lucky not to um, get trampled by, by a moose like other people did. Um, after the, the pass, you get into the um, interior proper, you know, you're over the, the Alaska range and there's, there's a lot more wildlife on the backside of the range. So coming down the pass, uh, coming down the backside of the pass into this, what they call the Dizel Gorge onto like this river, there was tons and tons and tons of wolf tracks um so that that quite got quite unnerving to begin with and then um they can start tracking you down can't they I've yeah heard, like, heard I stories mean, about wolves following people in these type of races for maybe a day or two yeah it happened in it's happened in the yukon arctic ultra a guy uh pulled out because he got stalked by a bunch of wolves and like i've seen in, in in the yukon arctic where there was wolf tracks all over this lake where i was and i was dying for sleep but i couldn't i wasn't gonna sleep on these wolf tracks <laughs> and they had uh they have proper trail markers in the Yukon and a lot of them have been pulled down um, and they had all bite marks in them. So the wolves, like I think the baby wolves have been playing with these trail markers. So you're looking at like all these little sticks with that are on the, on the trail that have got all little bite marks in them. And of course you might, I've heard wolves a couple of times, but you never see them. That's the thing. So it's, it's quite scary because you, you don't generally see them, you know, but one guy did see a wolf um, and he did tell me about it. He said um, he saw a wolf like go across the trail um, like a few hundred meters from just just dart across the trail and, and I said what was it like and he said like like think think the size of a baby cow but but like a dog you know so, so I was just like wow that's that's pretty pretty yeah so um but yeah I did have the, the scare the biggest wildlife encounter I did have was with the lynx so I uh I, I came down a trail um and it was it dropped down a, a little a dip and then it went back up the other side and there was something on the trail down below and I couldn't work out what it was. At first I thought it was a, like a moose sleeping or something. And I moved down closer and closer and eventually um, this lynx turns around. It, it, it was eating uh, eating into the carcass of something. It turns around and I'm only like maybe about 10, 15 meters away from it. And it looks at me like with a bloodied face. Like, and I could see it, just see it looking at me very calmly. And then it literally just kind of like took one jump off the trail into the woods. So I, I was left stood there for probably about 15 minutes because whatever this dead thing was, it was right in the middle of the trail. And I was like, I, I'd love to be able to Google right now. <laughs> do links do links attack humans? But I, I wasn't sure what was going on. So I had my two ski poles out and I eventually just was like, right, well, I got to walk past here because there's no other way of getting, 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 getting past. So I walked past anyway and with my two ski poles out, you know, just kind of kind of hoping this thing wouldn't jump out of the trees you know, because I, you know, I wasn't, you know, trying to eat its meal. And this was a, a carcass of a bison. 
Um, so there's all these bison in the area. And um, once you get beyond uh, uh, into this this area, and um, so there's this rotting carcass of a bison that the lynx had been eaten. So I got past that anyway, and I and I, I scampered off up the trail. And then actually a couple hours later, I met a whole lot of bison hunters, uh, these Alaskans who kind of proper frontiersmen. You know, they'd been traveling out in the in the wilderness for you know like weeks on end hunting these bison and um they'd come across the lynx and they'd actually shot it so i was a bit like what yeah because <laughs> it was in their way i was like oh you know it's like very 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 rare to even see a lynx and of course these americans go and shoot it uh, it was pretty cool though i'm sure that experience uh, it just it just these type of things just adds to the stories and the memories like doesn't it really absolutely yeah and it was funny actually i have a photo on my instagram um of like pa- not not far past that, there was a, a tree on the side of the trail, and there was all these like um, claw marks on it, like you know the way a cat a cat would uh, you know sharpen its claws, and it was probably uh, probably a lynx or that lynx that had been sharpening its sharpening its claws a few hours before that, you know? or one of the aliens with a ray gun or something like that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. You still haven't had much sleep at this stage, like because you're now moving into your fifth day, I suppose. Because it took you how long did it take you to finish? Is it six days? Six and a half days or six days, 12 hours, yeah. So five days into so, it, like, you must be really feeling it at this stage, like. Yeah, so that that point where I'd seen the links, uh, that was kind of the start of that long section to, which is 115K. So the checkpoint before that, which is the checkpoint after the pass, was like this uh, small little wall tent. I think I had about half, half an hour there. But again, it was um, morning time and I wanted to keep going. So I, I did that anyway. And I knew I'd be out on the trail like all through that day, you know, that night and then all the next day and probably the next night. So uh, what I did is I, I kept going and then I knew it'd have to bivy at some stage during the night. But it had gotten really cold at that point. I'd only had uh, probably f- five hours, six hours sleep at this point. So I was really, really struggling with the sleep deprivation that night. Um, and I, I did bivy down at one stage, but I actually had to get up and keep going because after about 20 minutes, I woke up and I was really cold. I was on this lake and there was very little snow. So I was kind of on the ice almost. So it didn't help like with a little bit of insulation, you know, what, what small insulation I did have. Three on that sleep. Dave, going into your fifth day, like decided to put a bivy down on top of a frozen lake. 20 minutes later, <laughs> you wake up cold. <laughs> No shit, Sherlock. Yeah. <laughs> but how do you, how do you actually? Because I can only imagine. I I hate it in the summertime when I stop in a twenty mile run and have to get up and go again. I'm not somebody that likes to stop at all. That your body can shut yeah. can shut down when you do yeah. that. So how do you how is it? How do you feel when you try to get going again? Do you have that same sense of trying to get it get the whole system moving and working again? Well, I mean, it's it's hard. Because, it's very hard because. Um, <clears throat> Yeah, like you, obviously, you're in a little coffin, and you know you're, you you know you're waking up in shock almost, you know, and like you 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 know you you get all you know you kind of got to get out and get going very quickly. So there isn't a whole lot of um, faff, you know. You got to, you know, the the bivy. I'd have it kind of set up to go anyway. I'd have the sleeping bag inside the bivy, and it would just kind of roll up, and I would just stuff it into the uh, sled so <clears throat> i had the ability to get going pretty quickly and that's what i had to do that night in particular i just had to keep moving um but you know i was quickly back into falling asleep again and the those few few hours from about like sort of i don't know what it was two one two o'clock in the morning for those three hours was it was a complete haze i was sort of really out of it 
and eventually I had to bivy again um, and I did sleep properly then because I'd gotten off the lakes and it wasn't as cold I slept for about an hour and then eventually it started to get a bit brighter and, and that saved me really just to get through that night you know because I knew that was that was probably the one of the hardest points of the race because I knew obviously that section was 115 kilometers so I was going to be out that whole night no matter what there was no sign of being near anywhere so once I got through that night I um like at this point like I like I you know I've been I use a lot of caffeine chewing gum but like that at that point it just doesn't work like I mean I remember getting up and trying to like take a load of that and it just like <laughs> It just doesn't work. It's pointless, absolutely pointless. So yeah, I got I got through got through that long section. It took until the very next night, at about one o'clock in the morning, when I got to the last checkpoint. So that was like going through that whole stage. Like it sounds like you're you're moving through this and grinding through it, okay. But um, like us normal people, there'd be a lot of doubt jumping into your mind at that stage. You know, you've got the fatigue. You got you've had no sleep at all. Conditions have been tough. Mm-hmm. Um, you're on your fifth day, you're cold. <laughs> like, is there yeah. any stage and you're like, what the frig am I doing here? Like, do you have those normal person thoughts? Like, I, I don't really allow myself to have that because I don't want to have a chink in the armor. Like, and my mindset when I'm going into these events is that like, like I'm going to turn into like more of an animal over the, over those few days. And I'm going to get more and more, like uh more and more apathy towards like you know my state you know so like i don't care like i don't i like i don't care how tired i am i don't care how like there's there's no reasoning like you know i mean it like there's no reason there anyway like i mean like that like if you try and explain that amount of sleep to anybody they're just gonna you know what i mean they're just gonna think like that's ridiculous but like i don't try i don't really allow that sort of mindset i just kind of have this i suppose yeah like just sort of animal way of thinking where it's like you know it's just kind of the body sort of even though it's breaking down slowly and it's not getting any better it's still a machine and it's still forging forward you know mm-hmm. and like when i look back like i still i still kind of think to myself geez how did i get through those kind of the that section in the middle you know and it's because i kind of like you know my body had sort of like adapted a, in somewhat to the conditions and it had like i'd kind of like been sort of so cut by it all that i was just you know pretty raw you know what i mean and i was and i also was quite i was quite hard on myself you know it's not um you know i'm not the you know i I'm, don't get me wrong i believe in sort of like positive thinking and you know sort of like you know having perspective and and being you know sort of you know in a good mindset but also like you know i was driving myself on you know like i had this mindset of like not taking a backward step and that was you know that was it like i was just going to keep going forward no matter what like even if i was just you're not going to be crawling like i was i was going to keep going you know so it was just yeah. kind of like an ever building sort of uh um like wave really like you know and, and and that's because that's when you need to have that the most you know because it's it's so easy for you to you know uh you know have chinks in your armor at that point but i've been through so much like you know like i've, I've gone through so much of the story already like I, my mindset was like, well, look, I've been through, I've been through so much. I've, I've like, you know, you know, suffered so much to get to this point. Like there's no way that I'm going to like, you know, have a chink in the armor. I need to keep pushing forward. It's a very deep level of acceptance. Like I, like even when I'm doing endurance events, which are a lot shorter than what you're doing. Um, I get to that point where I start telling myself a load of bullshit in my head, but I just know it's bullshit. Like, but I still struggle <laughs> with actually getting past that. You know, and you're 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 just saying to yourself, just shut. Up. 
what do you like and <laughs> you know you may or may not come on well you'll always you know you're always going to come on the other side of that it might take half an hour an hour two hours but eventually yeah. it'll pass um, but i still have a lot of resistance at that point um i don't know whether it's because it's just the shorter endurance events that i'm doing and that you haven't well i suppose every yeah. time you go to a different level of suffering you're able to get to that point easier the next time yeah, I suppose, like, I mean, obviously something shorter is, like, more intense physically, like, as in, you know, because the effort, like, whereas, like, I'm operating quite, you know, You're giving me a good excuse low. there. <laughs> it really is just bullshit <laughs> I'm telling myself, to be honest. No, but, I, no, I totally agree. Like, I mean, you you basically have to just lie to yourself. Like, that's what it is, you yeah. know, because, you know, you're re, a reasonable person will be like, well, like, that's a ridiculous distance. Like, how are you going to finish that? You know, whereas you're lying to yourself you're saying well i'm just going to take in this little chunk and i'm not going to think of this it's, it's just yeah it's just a it's just a massive bullshit job you know where you're just uh you know trying to like con yourself into doing it really you know yeah but a, ra a race like this really does test um that to the most extreme you know if you can get through this and you can accept what's going on know you're going in and out of that um pretty much the world's open to you like isn't it all these long sort of endurance races like because this is almost the ultimate test of getting through those bad patches yeah yeah like i mean that's the thing like for me this this race really like i ended up yeah i feel like i pushed myself really really close to the edge you know <laughs> and, yeah like i kind of I, I played around with fire a little bit and i, I kind of got away with it but that's, I mean, I think if you want to, I mean, if you definitely want to, if you want to win something like that, I think that's what you have to do. And, you know, you can, you can be a lot more conservative and, and, you know, the time frame was actually 10 days. So you could stop and rest and have your, you know, enjoy the checkpoints and, and, and spend more time. But um, I wanted to, I wanted to go to the edge, you know. On day five, then you came in, you were coming into the town um, you met Dave and those guys on the outskirts. Um, yeah. They give you a burger. Yeah. What yeah, was that so not like? Up. <laughs> yeah, Nikolai's the last checkpoint, and yeah, so they they were really good. The guys there, they were they'd all they were guys who'd done the race before, so they were, um, you know, they, they they knew how bad the conditions were, and and that they were just stoked to see the first guy coming in on foot, like beating a whole bunch of the bikers and stuff like that. So um, yeah, they were really good to me. They they looked after me, cooked me a burger. At like one o'clock in the morning and uh you know sort of made sure i yeah, got that must, a... that must have tasted like heaven like yeah it did actually yeah yeah it was amazing yeah it was, it was quite nice uh yeah because it had been a, a long sort of drag on the trail and i hadn't eaten a lot that that, that uh that last section you know i was kind of sick of all the snack food i had so i was kind of running on, on fumes at that stage and uh yeah it was really good to to get in there and um and uh yeah sort of get that burger and get and then that's when i slept for I think I slept for two hours then. You treated yourself? <laughs> yeah. Treated myself to two hours, yeah. Um, were you aware then of where everybody else was? I'm sure them guys give you updates of what was going on in the race. Yeah, so um, the whole section on, you know, whatever it was, probably a hundred, you know, a good hundred miles before that, like I had no clue what was happening. Um, so when I got there, like they had, there was an internet connection. They had, they were able to tell me and Christoph, the, the other guy, um, was quite a ways back. He was he's probably, I don't know, like 20, 25 miles back. So I definitely had a had a decent lead. So, you know, they were saying, oh, you could probably, you know, take a bit extra rest here if you wanted, you know. But I kind of was like, no, I just need to get this thing done at this stage because I was really, like when I woke up at like five o'clock in the morning on that last day, like I was in the right state. Like my feet had really blown up. They were quite swollen. 
Um, you know, I had this, I developed this cough and a lot of people had as well. It was like this trail cough because the, the change in the temperature, like that 40 degree swing going from like the sort of humid kind of, um, you know, precipitous uh, precipitation of like being in the Alaska range right through to the really cold interior to like minus 40. Everybody was kind of like had this kind of dry cough. And uh, I ended up, I was hacking up this like, you know, like quite green mucus. I was quite worried. I was like, Jesus, that's some sort of like gnarly chest infection, you know? <laughs> and then uh, I went for, I went for uh, one of my only craps that I took and uh, like I had blood in it as well, you know? So like, I was just like, holy crap, I'm, I'm, the you know, I'm, I'm really like rotting out here. <laughs> so I need to, I need to get the job done here big time. So I, I just said, right, I need to get back out there and, and, and get this last 50k done, you know? So the last 50k then, how did that go coming into, like you only had, how much sleep did you have going into that? Like six hours sleep? I think, yeah, I think six, all in all it was probably, probably eight hours, maybe total. Yeah. So that was six, yeah. Six, day six. Yeah. <laughs> like basically averaging about an hour, maybe an hour and a half a day. Um, so I was really, yeah, really not in a good place. But what I did is it was I left at eight o'clock in the morning um i planned to leave at seven actually but what happened is i ate so much food that i started to get nauseous and sick and i was nearly gonna vomit and i i was like quite worried because i knew i didn't want to vomit up all the really good food i'd eaten because the lads had made me like um uh like uh french toast and stuff like that you know and i drank a lot of coffee and stuff so precious calories yeah so i ended up having to like i ended up lying down on the ground of the the community center and i was kind of writhing around for the best part of 45 minutes, just kind of like nauseous and kind of deep breathing and kind of sweating and eventually trying to calm myself because I just didn't want to have to get sick, you know? And eventually I kind of like regained control of the system and sort of rallied myself to get out there. So I left at eight o'clock in the morning and it had started snowing again. So the temperature come back up um, and it wasn't as cold, but it was snowing again, light snow and it had been snowing most of the night. So it was back in snowshoes and the last 50K, which was um, not a particularly interesting trail, but it was kind of through the trees and stuff like that and across a bunch of lakes, um, which I was kind of sick of doing at this stage. But um, I basically, a couple hours in, I realized that I could potentially get this done in 18 hours. So as long as I kept a good pace, like four or five kilometers an hour in the snowshoes, I could be done at um, you know, two o'clock in the morning, which was, which was you know, pushing it as regards like what i could, couldn't couldn't do you know physically and mentally so I, I kept pushing the whole way through the day and uh i actually it was quite bizarre i had a i'd been listening to music along the way you know intermittently in a couple of podcasts and things like that but i just said i needed something like proper like some, something proper banging to listen to <laughs> so i ended up finding this really good techno mix, mix by this guy alan fitzpatrick and it was like an hour long but i was quite into it and then i just said you know what i'm gonna listen to this mix like on the hour every hour for like the next i think this is in the daytime for the next whatever 12 hours and like literally that's what i did i just like hit repeat <laughs> every hour and just like kept going through this mix and just kept just like stomping along and uh it kind of got me through there because i was kind of like i knew it was an hour long each time and i was you know i was quite into it it was quite a good mix anyway and um <laughs> But then by nighttime, I really started to falter. Like I kind of touched on it earlier about the sort of delirium that I experienced and stuff. But what ended up happening is um, there was this story of this guy, this guy who did the race for the first time, like myself, a couple of years ago. His name was Scott Hoberg, American guy. And he was in the lead of the race. 
and he'd gotten very little sleep and he was coming towards the end and he kind of lost it a bit and he ended up unhooking his sled and wandering off in a bit of a delirium and he ended up having to get rescued because they realized his sled, his tracker wasn't moving in the woods in a complete delirium and his race was over and I was in the situation, what I felt like was exactly the same thing. I was a guy who was doing the race for the first time. I was, you know, pushed to, pushing on sleep deprivation and I was coming towards the end and I was starting to fall apart. And what happened to me was I'd seen a couple of snowmobilers about 25k from the end. And in my hallucinating mind, I was thinking to myself, you know what? That means I'm near civilization. So I started seeing more and more like buildings and stuff like that. And I kept seeing people coming out of driveways and like it was just really out of control hallucinations so much so that I just couldn't look up like I couldn't I had to just literally look at my feet um and then further along I just kept blacking out like there was points where I don't have any recollection of, of being on the trail and I was I was really really paranoid and really worried at that stage I was thinking to myself oh man they can see on the tracker that I'm all over the place you know they're they're watching me now they're going to come out and rescue me and tell me my race is over the reality of the fact is like the only person that was looking at my tracker at that hour of the night was my mother back in Ireland, you know, who <laughs> was getting less sleep than me, you know. Um, so, yeah, it was a pretty crazy last few hours. Um, but I eventually got to this like road on the outskirts of town and that kind of like jolted me back into, you know, like, you know, reality, sort of reality a bit. Yeah. So um, and I finished at, like three o'clock in the morning and of course, you know, there was no fanfare. There was like one volunteer that came out to meet me, you know, and uh, it was, it was <laughs> yeah. So how did that feel then finishing it? Like were you relieved, elated? Uh, I was so relieved, yeah. Because like, again, that the last drag, it just took forever, you know. I sort of couldn't fathom that it was still another like 10K when I was 10K out. And yeah, it was just a, quite arduous. And at that point, I'd let my feet would gotten quite sore you know they were quite swollen and uh, in my in my runners and i developed a few blisters so they were just in they were just really really painful so i was right on you know i was just like i'd had enough like there was i couldn't do another another mile like because i you know i just was yeah i was done i was so done so i was just so unbelievably relieved you know just just to get to the finish and it was this it was a house that this family kind of put us put us up in this town you know so yeah it was three o'clock in the morning there was a bunch of people in there asleep that had finished before me the bikers and stuff so I just kind of sat myself down and, and, uh, yeah, I was just, just unbelievably sleep. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I can go to sleep now. Yeah, um, how exactly. did your body recover after that then? Does it like, is it exhausted like for two, three weeks after that? I'm sure that recovery process takes a long time. Yeah. So the first the initial kind of shutdown is not nice. Like I, first thing I did is put on a pair of compression socks. Like I probably should have been wearing them, wearing them before that, but, and I went to sleep on the ground. Like I barely got, unchanged uh, got undressed from my kit like i just lay on the ground but i threw my feet up on this couch and i slept for a few hours and when i woke up then i was like all puffed out like you know a lot of like all of my face is really swollen and like i really just couldn't walk at all i was just hobbling around the place and making this sound um, really attractive by the way yeah <laughs> <laughs> and then it's just a case of like yeah just you know eat and sleep and i just stayed in that house for a couple of days but I couldn't fathom leaving there. Like I was like, I had to fly on a small bush plane back to Anchorage and then, which is two days later. And the day after that fly back to France and like those couple of days in the house, like, I mean, I did recover a bit, but I, I, I was thinking to myself, like I actually can't fathom being able to get on a plane and, you know, face reality and doing things like that, you know? So it was a, 
I just yeah, eventually got my got my shit together. But um, it was yeah, it was it was a hard couple of days where I was just yeah, in complete shutdown mode. You know, I got a sort of inkling feeling at the beginning of that story um, that you were potentially thinking about going longer on that course. Would you go back and do the longer course? Yeah, I think I would. Yeah, I, I yeah. <laughs> I mean, like the, obviously, you, when you when you do the three hundred and fifty, you automatically qualify for the thousand if you want to do it. And like only, I think only like thirteen people have done that on foot. Like obviously, a thousand miles compared to like three hundred and fifty is an astronomically longer distance. You know, you've got a thirty day time limit. Yeah, it's absolutely bonkers. But it would be a completely different strategy. Like you know, I would not be, you know, pushing the sleep deprivation like that. I'd be. It would be more of like an expedition kind of. Yeah. Even though you still have to do, day, you know, quite a lot of mileage to finish in 30 days, it would be a lot more like a lot more management of, of self than than sort of like, you know, crazy sleep de- depri- mm. deprivation and, you know, wandering around in a delirium and stuff like that, you know, which is what I enjoy, what I enjoyed about the shorter race, you know. You're trying to keep a more consistent level, I suppose, in a longer sort of race. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Yeah. It was, I think it was Ayrton Senna who said, um, the closer you are to death, the more you feel alive. <laughs> it's sort, yeah. sort of a picture. That, one, one question I've got, you're 38 years of age now. Just just turned 39 actually last so week. So. 39, happy birthday. Right. Um, Cheers. We could do a second podcast right here and now. So <laughs> after, so, uh, <laughs> there's, a, there's a different type of story in a different podcast, I think. Um, yeah, possibly, but... Yeah, I mean, a lot of things have led up to this point. Like, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't a sort of, um, uh, it didn't happen overnight, you know. And um, yeah, I suppose, like, you know, with 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 sort of my troubles as as a teenager with alcohol and drugs, going to rehab at twenty one, and you know, sort of getting clean and sober, and then, you know, doing getting into the job that I do, working on the oil rigs as a diver, and, <laughs> and then leading up to all these crazy races and eventually rolling across the atlantic like is uh is a is a big sort of uh a big sort of explanation i suppose yeah um what's what's your thoughts you think we should unpack that in a different podcast i mean yeah i'd like to get into it like i mean i suppose you you know you touched on like you know ultra runners being like that way inclined anyway so you know it's definitely and I think I think it's a, a unique story that a lot of different people will get a lot of different things from. Um, yeah. I think I was just listening, just as we were coming to the end of that um, journey, I think we'd done that justice. Um, right, okay. Because what, what I love there is when I'm unpacking a race, I'm experiencing the race myself. I've got yeah. frostbite in my fingers here. I'm watching out for this wolf <laughs> coming behind me. There's an alien sitting up on the top shelf here pointing a laser, <laughs> a laser gun at me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, a, I've just, yeah. I'm totally whited out um, and that's what I love like um, so we've done that really really well um, uh-huh. I think it would it wouldn't do it justice to do the the actual the baseline yeah. foundation story I think we should come around that again I'm going to leave the listeners hanging so really appreciate you contacting me I reckon we should um, tie up again definitely yeah who have we got I've actually got Dean Carnazes this weekend oh wow which is pretty cool like um but maybe tie up again next weekend sure we're not doing anything at the minute so yeah no if you want to yeah yeah I'm, I'm, I'm definitely up for it yeah well there you have it folks a great insight into gavin's i did a raw trail race win back in march 350 kilometers across the frozen landscape of alaska absolutely mind-blowing conditions 
Phenomenal mental resilience and determination to succeed no matter what conditions are thrown at him. Really looking forward to part two where we unpack his true story. I'd just like to finish by saying this is a very crazy time. The world is struggling to manage the, with the coronavirus, so it's important that each one of us do what we can by not taking risks. Maintaining social distances and only traveling to places where necessary. I'm running a short competition on the Inspiration Runner podcast group on Facebook to celebrate the podcast's second birthday with star guest Dean Karnazes. So make sure you drop in and join our community. You will be greatly welcomed. Until next week, stay safe and keep on moving. <laughs>